0: Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, it is our great pleasure today to welcome Dave Curlin to the show. Welcome, Dave. Thank you, Jeremy. It's great to be here. I also have my trusty co-host, Mandy Georgeoff.
1: Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Dave. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm terrific. Thank you.
0: Dave is the author of Baseline Selling, as well as the founder and CEO of Objective Management Group. And they've actually assessed over 2 million salespeople since 1990. So we'll talk a bit about sales, hiring, and assessments, but a ton of other things because Dave, he probably doesn't want me to describe him this way, but is absolutely one of the godfathers of modern selling. Oh, you're
1: killing me already.
0: (laughs) Well, one way to get to know you actually, since you've kind of been in the game for a while is you, you have an award-winning blog. We'd love to read it. Understanding the Salesforce. It's at omghub.com. I understand you have an interesting backstory about why that is the OMG, obviously, for objective management group, but why the hub
1: part of that? Yeah, that is an interesting story. I was introduced to the guys at HubSpot back in 2006 before they had any customers. Darmesh. One of the co-founders and Mark Roberge, who ended up becoming the chief revenue officer. But at that time, he was just consulting to them and me. They said, we'd love to have you move your blog over to HubSpot because it's going to be all these wonderful things and it's going to be the hub of the universe and it's going to have all these spokes connecting all these things. Anyhow, we agreed that it would be a good idea to get off the blogger platform and move the blog over to their platform. Then came the domain name. And instead of uh, having it be part of the objective management website or part of the Curlin Associates website, they said, no, let's give it its own name. Hub is going to be an important part of what we do. So we'll call it omghub.com. Years later, it was obvious that wasn't a smart decision. But in those early days, I'd be writing a blog article at night and I'd hit a bug and I'd email Darmesh, and he'd stay up all night to fix it. And then I'd go back to writing the next day until I hit another bug. This went on for months and months and months. You know, write, hit a bug, Darmesh would fix it, and i go back to writing. Out of curiosity, I mean, you probably monitor, well, you absolutely do monitor on the
0: blog the most popular articles ever. So I'm staring at one of them that says the most popular article ever is the 21 new sales core competencies for modern selling. 21s a lot of core competencies. What are, so what are some of those core competencies that managers
1: should look for when they're hiring? That's a great question. If we're going to go through 21 of them, then we have to put them into buckets. So there's three buckets that we assess salespeople in. The first bucket is will to sell, grit. And that has five competencies in it. One is their commitment to greater success in sales. Two is their desire, how badly they want to achieve greater success in sales. Three is their motivation. So while desire is the how badly, motivation is the what behind that desire. And then there's outlook, how they feel about themselves and what they're doing for a career and responsibility, whether or not they take responsibility for their failures or rationalize it away and come up with some external reason. So that's bucket number one. Bucket number two is sales DNA. That's the stuff that appears between the head and the belly and sales DNA As a strength supports a salesperson's ability to execute sales process, sales strategies, and sales tactics. As a weakness, instead of supporting it, it sabotages it. And there are six major competencies in the sales DNA bucket. The first is whether or not a salesperson needs to be liked. So that's different from likable, right? We're together on this and we're all nice and likable and having a good time with each other. But Beyond that, if we need to be liked, that gets in the way. Because today, in order to differentiate from the competition, you need to take a consultative approach to sales. But consultative in selling requires that a salesperson ask a lot of good, tough, timely questions. And someone who needs to be liked can't ask the questions because they're afraid that if they ask one more question or a tough question or the biggie. So people who need to be liked can't push back and they can't challenge conventional thinking. And as you said, they can't call somebody out on lack of engagement. Uh, The second one is their ability to control their emotions. So back to consultative selling, listening and asking questions. We just talked about needing to be liked, which gets in the way of asking the questions. Inability to control emotions gets in the way of listening. So inability to stay in the moment, stay right here, right now impacts listening. The third one is discomfort, talking about money. Every salesperson has been taught to ask the two worst questions in selling. Do you have a budget or how much is in your budget? Can't stand either of those questions. So it forces the salesperson to have a conversation about finances and justifying a spend and finding the money selling value. And if they can't talk about money, they're uncomfortable talking about money. They never really sell the value. They never really find out whether the prospect can afford it and will spend it. The fourth one, when I introduced this competency 30 years ago, I called it non-supportive buy cycle. And we kept that even though nobody knows what the hell it means. This is how a salesperson goes about making a major purchase for themselves. And there's 100% correlation between how they buy and what they'll allow their prospects to do to them. So there's five parts of buy cycle. Research, one is how much is a lot of money. Another one is whether they comparison shop, store to store to store, brand to brand to brand, product to product to product, vendor to vendor to vendor. Another one is whether they shop for the lowest price or buy value. And the fifth one is whether they need to think it over when they have finally done all that other stuff. Here's a way of framing it. At Objective Management Group, we bucketize salespeople into four more buckets. The elite top 5%, and then there's another 15% that we consider strong, and then there's 30% that we consider serviceable, and then there's the bottom 50% who all suck. Salespeople who have the most supportive buy cycles, they don't research, they don't shop around, they don't buy on price. And they have a very high threshold for how much is a lot of money. All the top 5% are people with real supportive buy cycles. The way they buy supports an ideal sales outcome. And if you look at the bottom 50%, most of them have horrible buy cycles. It's fine for life, but just not fine for selling success. They research and they shop around and they look for the lowest price and they think $50 is a lot of money and they can't make a decision. So... When one of those salespeople comes against one of those prospects who wants to either uh, research first or talk to five vendors or look for the lowest price or keep putting the decision off, those salespeople in the bottom 50% understand it makes sense. And they go, oh, okay. when should I follow up? And the salespeople in the top 5% say, wait a minute, I don't understand. Why are you doing this? And they start a conversation.
0: If you identify a buyer who has that kind of buy cycle, do you walk away?
1: No. Why would you walk away? But you do try to change if you don't need them to like you and you're okay asking tough questions, you would start asking, why are you talking to five of us? Are you having that much trouble finding what you want? Are you having that much trouble finding somebody who will listen to your needs? Why are you looking for the lowest price instead of focusing on value? You know, you've got a problem here that needs to be fixed, and the lowest price might not get you the solution. It might get you a Band-Aid.
0: So you said uh, need to be liked, control their emotion, discomfort talking about money, the non-supportive bicycle. And then you said there were, I think, two more of those.
1: Yeah, there are. One is uh, their ability to recover from rejection. You know, a lot of people think about fear of rejection and rejection avoidance. And rejection is part of selling. So it's not that. It's really when you get rejected, how long does it take to get back on the horse? If it's 30 or 60 seconds, no big deal. If it's a couple minutes, no big deal. If it's an hour, it becomes problematic. If it's a day or two, it's really serious. If it's weeks. And this happens where salespeople could take weeks to recover from the last time they were rejected. So we look at rejection proof, And the sixth one in sales DNA is beliefs. Whether the things that salespeople think are supportive of ideal sales outcomes or they sabotage ideal sales outcomes. Everything starts with a belief because beliefs form your actions and your behaviors and those actions and behaviors drive results. So if they're not starting with the right beliefs, then the actions, behaviors, and results won't follow. And that brings us to the third bucket, which is the tactical selling competencies that everyone would recognize, like hunting, building relationships, taking a consultative approach, selling value, thoroughly qualifying, presentation approach, which isn't presentation skills. It's the concept of presenting the right ideas to the right people for the right reasons at the right time. Closing, which, by the way, is completely overrated. You can take some of those top 5% performers And you'll see green scores up and down the dashboard in the 21 sales core competencies and a red score for closing. Because if you do all the stuff that happens before closing, all the stuff I just said, if you do all that stuff well, you don't need to close. You're just going to get the business. But if you suck at all the things that happen before closing, then you better be a good closer because all the pressure is going to be on you to close that business. And then uh, sales process, sales technology, that's a new competency this year. Sales technology includes uh, using CRM, using social selling and selling virtually over video. 21st one, we elevated it from a non-core to a core this past year. And that's reaches decision makers because the, the latest data shows that salespeople who get in front of decision makers early in the process are three hundred and forty one percent more likely to bring that opportunity to fruition.
0: So that I contextualize the following question. Imagine, you know, you're you're working with someone who is in the B2B SaaS industry and they say, hey, twenty one is a lot of competencies. Are there, if you look at the top five percent, the elite crew of sellers in those types of organizations, which of the 21 competencies in the three buckets stand out as being the differentiators between the elite and the bottom 50 percent?
1: The elite have will to sell scores in the 80s and the bottom group, their scores are under 60. The elite have sales DNA scores in the high 70s to low 80s and the weak salespeople are in the 50s. And among the 10 tactical selling competencies, the ability to sell consultatively and sell value and reach decision makers and thoroughly qualify are the difference makers right now. For a company that's hiring salespeople, we customize their configuration. We have 30 variables in our first round of customization uh, so that when we understand what it takes to succeed in that role at that company, Selling into their market to their decision makers against their competition at their price points, et cetera, et cetera, we can fine tune it. So it's recommending the right salespeople and the right competencies are being factored into the recommendation. One thing I'd
0: love your perspective on is uh, there's sort of a movement afoot that says we've over specialized in sales. And then I even ran into someone who said we've under specialized in sales, right? So you've got SDRs, AEs, sales engineers implementation specialists, account managers, renewal specialists, go on and on and on. Have, have we over-specialized or are we under-specialized?
1: Oh, yeah. When we evaluate a sales force, one of the things we do is a role analysis. We take all the roles and we take all the salespeople and we show which roles the salespeople are best suited for. Over and over and over again, they're in the wrong roles to start with. So as long as they're being put in the wrong roles where they're set up for failure instead of set up for success. And and I'm not saying that we go back to the old days where one salesperson is responsible for the entire sales cycle from prospecting to closing, and that's all we have. I really haven't seen the success of having 12 different roles in a high-tech company selling SaaS.
0: One of the more radical ideas I had heard lately is around hyper-specialization is salespeople don't spend enough time active selling. Let's been the thing forever, right? I don't know what the statistics are, 30 to 40% of their time active selling. Everything else is admin and all sorts of other things.
1: But only because they're hiring the wrong people.
0: You're saying if they had hired the right people, then those people would be focused on selling and not focused on distracting themselves with other things?
1: What's the thing we see with CRM? executives spend half their week chasing people to update the CRM, but it's the good salespeople they're chasing down. It's all a big balancing act, right? Because one, let's assume that the company does have a professionally customized, optimized, staged, milestone-centric, customer-focused sales process. And let's further assume that that's been integrated into the CRM application with all of the company's plays. So if we assume that for the average seller, then CRM is guiding them through their process for every opportunity. And CRM is true sales enablement. If the company doesn't have sales process the right way and it hasn't been integrated the right way and. Playbooks aren't built in It's a clunky CRM application that's heavily focused on data entry, than opportunities. It's a waste of time for most salespeople. Well, an-
0: another thing that's out there is every whatever couple of years, someone pronounces something dead, right? Cold calling is dead. Bant is dead. I have zero doubt someone's going to say social selling is dead in, in a year or two. So like, what's your take on the the XYZ? And maybe we need to talk about each of them, but like, what's your take on the XYZ is dead thing? And, and I'm actually curious, is there anything you believe truly is dead?
1: Yeah, my grandparents are dead. That's about it. One, one of the benefits of nobody using the phone is that when it rings, it's a game changer. That's because the attempts are all being made over horrible workflowed. Emails that aren't personalized and don't stand out and are self-centered. That's what I want. I want to meet with you today at two o'clock to take 15 minutes to talk to you about what I want to talk to you about. The phone is is really powerful right now. The phone is the differentiator. Emails are just lost in a big stack of noise. Nothing's dead. And you have to consider the source. And usually the source is somebody with something different to sell and in order for them to sell it they have to justify and rationalize that the thing it replaces is really dead
0: yeah on the on the xyz is dead the most recent one i i read they were effectively saying outbound selling is dead which i was fascinated by and and the premise was that millennials don't like to have sales conversations They much prefer to do their research and then trial and then buy. And they point to the, you know, what we would think of as freemium, but today has been rebranded as PLG as product-led growth. They point to that, that like everybody should have PLG and that all you should ever do is filter through your PLG
1: leads and follow up on those. I'm thinking as recently as 2007, 2008, they were saying cold calling was dead. In addition to cold calling was dead along the way over the last 16 years, sales process became dead. Consultative selling became dead. Spin selling became dead. Solution selling became dead. And selling became dead. Every seller was going to be replaced by artificial intelligence and marketing. But who says it? So HubSpot was the first company to say that selling was dead because it was all going to happen through inbound. Then they got a dose of Reality and a little more realistic. But most of the marketing oriented, AI oriented companies all had to proclaim that something would be dead in order to carve a niche for their thing. So nothing's dead. It's important to kind of put this dividing line between sales and marketing. It's not a blend, it's not a hybrid. There's marketing and that's everything that happens before we have a conversation. And there's selling, which is everything that happens after the marketing. Let marketing decide what marketing is going to do to create visibility and generate opportunities, not leads, but names with contact information. Let a top of the funnel team qualify the contacts enough so that we know the salesperson can justify it in spending some time talking to them. And then let the salespeople do what salespeople do.
0: A follow-up question to that, and this is timely. It was a conversation I had on with an AE on my team yesterday. But any tips, Dave, for coaching sellers to improve qualification
1: skills? How do the frontline sales leaders coach poorly, really poorly? Only 7% of all sales managers are able to truly coach up their salespeople. That's the first problem. The second problem is they're spending less than 15% of their time on coaching when they should be spending 50% of their time on coaching. So assuming they were going to spend the time and assuming they were going to do it effectively, qualifying is easy. Salespeople make it hard. Assuming that our discovery conversation has gotten us to the point where we've uncovered a problem that we can fix, that we've learned about the, the ripple effect of that problem, implications and consequences, and we've monetized it, And we've gotten a person to express how they feel about having a problem that's costing this much money. We have to find out how committed they are to fixing it. And commitment is usually skipped. Salespeople just zip right over whether they're committed to fixing it or committed to changing partners or suppliers or vendors. Because if the commitment to do something different isn't there, why are we still talking? Most salespeople don't find out that the commitment wasn't there until they've tried to close six times. That happens right after we've gotten some emotional response to the monetization of the consequences of the problem. Second, once we've gotten that emotional response and we know how much it's costing, one of the most powerful qualifying questions is who else cares about this? That eliminates the need to be saying, who's the decision maker? Who else is getting involved? Can I meet with the decision maker? If it's asked at the right time, who else cares about this, elicits all the people who are going to be involved in making the decision. And we can ask, why aren't they part of this conversation? Third, how soon do you want this problem fixed? the timeline question not when are you going to make a decision which is sometime months from now then the response is usually today yesterday and that allows us to ask about shortcuts when there's this much urgency to fix a problem what are the shortcuts you've taken in the past that have allowed you to get to the end of this process without having to go through all the normal bureaucracy and then what's left money we should know approximately how much it's going to cost to fix this problem you've spent the last 45 minutes sharing all about this awful problem that's causing you this much grief and aggravation and stress, costing you this much money. Are you willing to spend this much to solve that much problem and do it right the first time with me? There's more, but the essence of qualifying is who's going to be involved? Can we meet those people? Are you willing to spend the money? And the money has to be a value spend, not a price spend. Are you willing to spend more with me to get it fixed the right way? Are you willing to do the things internally that'll shortcut the bureaucracy so that we can get to a decision now instead of months from now? Those are the shortcuts that work, but they don't work unless a salesperson masterfully executed the discovery call, got to those compelling reasons, differentiated, monetized it, admitted emotion, and found out who else cares. On the money piece, there's also
0: this multiple schools of thought. And if there were one answer, we'd all be doing it, I suppose. but. People sometimes say if a prospect asks you how much does it cost early in the sales cycle, don't answer, kick it down the road. Then there's some who say proactively say, that, "Hey, we're not the cheapest solution. You're looking at two hundred thousand dollars minimum. Where do you land there?"
1: I want to know if they'll spend what the appropriate amount of money is to spend for the ideal solution that thoroughly solves their problem better than anybody else.
0: You know, for that buyer, do you think that the cost of your solution is trivial or is it significant? And maybe perhaps the more significant it is for the buyer. So now you're talking
1: about Einstein's theory of relativity. (laughs) (laughs) And that's important because when we monetize the cost of their problem and we we hear a number like that's costing us $17,000 a day. And how long have you had the problem? So we get some number that's like three and a half million dollars. You've got to be able to ask, is that a lot of money for you guys or not? For the multi-billion dollar company, it's not. And for a small, medium-sized business, that's enormous. So everything is relative. Just because we think it's a lot of money doesn't make it a lot of money. Just because we don't think it's a lot of money doesn't mean it isn't. Salespeople can ask a question like, does that scare you?
0: You've given us a ton of practical advice today. I love the walkthrough of the sales core competencies and the guidance uh, for people on how to sell. If you want to want to like dive in more in addition to omghub.com,
1: where else should they go? Well, that's a good starting place because you can reach me through OMG Hub. There's 1950 articles I've written there in the last 15 years that don't have the emotion in them that that you hear in a in a podcast um, and we cover all the usual topics all the stuff we talked about today are covered in more depth in more ways and more detail it's fine with me if you want to buy my book baseline selling
0: i have it on my shelf so uh definitely recommend it as one of one of the must read books in in the uh sales lexicon so thank you for for writing that for us you're welcome thanks for liking it thanks so much for being on the show today hey thanks for inviting me i enjoyed it Thanks, Dave. Thank you. You're welcome. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey, Salespeople podcast.